Now, back to our program. What was the time period as far as like you starting at the Cattle Club? And I guess what, what kind of closed that, that chapter? I started it in 89. I had a goal in mind, mm-hmm. which was to the frustration I had that local bands weren't getting on good shows when they would come around and that they weren't, local bands couldn't even get Friday and Saturday shows. You, there were places like Malarkey's and whatnot, local bands couldn't even, they'd get like Wednesdays, 21 and over. So it really was my way of trying to create something that people could come see the bands that I liked. And then Brian came in and he was able to bring uh, bigger names to the table and then together we would uh, figure out the locals that would go on the show and he and I thought about that sometimes because he was the one whose ass was on the line with the agents and we tried to good cop bad cop it wherein I would be like well then tell him we're not going to do the show no I want so and so on this and if he's not going to do it then we're not going to do the show and Brian would do that he'd abide by it and we would get locals on the shows but I think it was frustrating for him mm-hmm. I wasn't in his position he's trying to build a relationship with these guys and I'm being the hard ass he's like no fuck it if he's not gonna let us put so-and-so on the show tell him we'll pass and the agents thought we're crazy you know I mean remember doing this with the, that band Bush you know we brought them in and it's like uh no if we can't put so-and-so on the band on the show uh we'll just pass we'll take them next time let us know when they come around again and the guy's like are you fucking kidding me you're gonna not take this show because you can't put your buddy's band on the show i'm like i'm not putting my buddy's band on the show i'm putting a good local band on the show that deserves it that's going to please the audience And this, you know, this is what we're doing, you know, and I can understand the agents being apprehensive, probably thinking there probably is a lot of cronyism and bullshit like that. But um, that's not what we did. We were smart. We wanted to build up bands that we knew we could build up. We're not going to just throw any, we're not going to waste a slot like that on just anybody. We want bands to be in front of the right people and, and turn them into their unlegitimate headliners. Yeah. So one year to the day after we started the club, we did our first Crest Theater show, which was a big deal. We'd been doing this club that had an occupancy of 135, that by this time, maybe we had squished as many as 400 or 500 into on certain nights and it and and one of those bands was primus it became we knew we wanted to go we knew we wanted to go into something bigger we it just needed to be cost effective and we knew we wanted to be the crest i especially knew that and i will tell you a story it's just so great it's like i remember there was a period of time when the crest wasn't open i I think i told you when i was doing those park shows there was actually an organization called save the crest theater it was about revitalizing the crest and bringing it back to being a showroom but it was just closed it was newspapered windows and it wasn't open for a long time now before that i'd seen shows there like the psychedelic furs and x and you know things like that but for many years nothing and i remember being there standing outside it one day with no reason at all to ever think that i would ever be putting on shows the way i eventually was and thinking to myself if i could bring any band into the crest theater it would be the cramps i was like my little you know 21 year old 22 year old dream just like oh man the cramps would be so cool to see here i just love them so much and oh perfect room for them so one year later uh, we went in with our first show and we went in with primus because we knew those guys and they were the band that was kind of exploding you know like doing 500 people at the cattle club so let's go into the crest theater let's put solid support on see if we can try and do a thousand people went in like on a thursday night i think we did like you know six or seven hundred people People, so it was worth it and it was great and then we i was just like let's do the cramps let's get the cramps in here they had just put out an album let's let's let lux and and ivy know that it's the crest theater because they used to live here in town and i know that they know what this place is and it'll probably blow their minds to think they could play here so let's do it and sure enough we got them and so i didn't remember more than even so at primus was walking out onto the stage hours before the show when we just first got there and we're loading in sound and standing on that crest theater stage and just looking out at all those seats and what a difference that was 
was than from the cattle club and thinking like, okay, we've been filling a room that goes from here to there, I could say, and point at something, you know, 30 feet away from me and go, and that's the size of the room that I could see everybody in. But here I am in this room that goes from here to way back there. And we're going to fill it. It goes way up there into those, you know, high seats and we're going to fill it. And we had, um, they were touring with Flat Duo Jets, but we'd brought in a, an artist that we really liked from the Bay Area called Buck Naked and the Bare Bottom Boys. And that excitement of knowing that Buck, who was an artist we really liked, I was now going to put him on a show in front of a thousand people. And it just felt like we had really accomplished something. I mean, we had. At that point, we'd really moved it to the next step. And that was just the start. That whole summer, we were bringing in these great acts and putting locals on in front of a thousand people. And, uh, and we were routinely selling it out. You know, they were all the shows were doing great. But what this did was it it uh, opened up the eyes again. Still pre commercialization, radio hasn't caught on yet. Media hasn't caught on yet. It's just happening. But also, who hadn't caught on was the other big promoters like Bill Graham Presents or Orpheum Productions, who were Bay Area things that would come into town and do hair bands. They never thought of doing the Cramps or Primus or any of that. And once they saw us doing it, they tried to squeeze us out of it. And they start bidding on the same shows as us and, and really overbidding, offering the bands way more than we could. And uh, we just went, okay, let them. We got a street team that can promote this thing for $20. You know, we can make this, they're, they're going to take out all these radio ads. They're going to spend thousands of dollars on this and that. And we're just like, just let them. And so that ran its course after about six to nine months. They just, they just blew themselves out. They couldn't do the show the way we could. We were plugged into the scene and it started to come back our way again. And some of the bands like Primus were just loyal to us. They weren't going to go do it with those guys. So we still had them. And we finally got started getting our foot back in the door at the crest. I mean, all the while we're still doing the cattle club, even to the degree that we're doing like six nights a week there uh you know what started out as an every other friday thing at one point was six nights a week the only night we weren't doing was wednesday when they had the gay dance going on and that was something i always embraced from the get-go was was the was the gay aspect of bojangles i loved it i was just like that's exactly the filter if you can't come here because it's gay you're exactly the person i don't want here so how awesome is that that we are doing all age alternative music shows in a gay bar and it's like man this is it just instantly is who i want there that lasted for a while but eventually the douchebags start creeping in and just you know the homophobes and they're assholes regardless of whether or not the place is gay but for a while there it was kind of a filter and um but it was cool but that was still good on wednesdays but we were doing our six nights a week but now we're also doing the crest theater and then about two years into it we'd reached the point where locals that we had been putting on shows with uh, headliners and just spacing out and being very meticulous and smart about how we booked them were starting to become very big, you know, doing 500 people at the Cattle Club. And knowing that if we took Kai Cone and, say, Deftones, which sounds crazy now, that, that those were even pieces to play with, a little dash of Deftones and a, a smidgen of far, uh, but we would, we would take these bands and we'd say, hey, Let's go build a show with you guys at the Crest. And then we were selling out the Crest for local bands. And uh, it got to the point where I think there was 10 to 15 local bands that we could sell out the Crest Theater with. And that was the the heyday. That would be from 92 to 95. Do you remember all the bands, or at least a, a good portion? LGS, Cake, Mother Hips, Dutch Falcone, Filibuster, Jackpot, uh, Oleander, Brody's, Simon Says, Far, Deftones, 
Kaikon. We were at a point where we did have all these bands that were like selling out the crest and just felt so good to be in that position. And on that particular night, we had a night where um, we wanted to take uh, Kaikon and Mother Hips into the Crest Theater. I think it was the first time we were taking Mother Hips in there. You know, and we believed confidently we would sell it out, and that's why we'd go in there. And let me tell you, when you sold out one of those shows at 10 or $12 a head, the two bands were walking out of there with about six or $7,000 combined. And then they would sell merch. We did a show there one night with LGS. You worked at the Crest. Mm-hmm. I, I never, you know, disclosed this publicly to Sid, but I mean, it's not going to break her heart if she knows this. But I think because of the way the tickets were done, uh, we didn't really realize until later that we'd let about 1,200 people into the Crest Theater. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> through, yes, it, it did happen, though. We, we literally had about 1,200 people for that show. And then LGS themselves did some mega $3,000 merch or something. Insane. A yeah, local yeah, band yeah. that yeah. was never put out their own CDs. Right. You know, and, yeah. and, and I don't even know if they walked out of there with them that night. They themselves probably made six or $7,000 that night. Wow. So we're going in there with this... Uh, Local show. Mother Hips, Kai Cone. Then we find out that uh, Pearl Jam is going to be playing at Cal Expo that night. I'm like, oh my God, okay, well, I was hoping to sell the show out, but, uh, you know, cross our fingers, hopefully it'll still do okay. You know, Cal Expo's pretty big, Pearl Jam was really big at that time, and because uh, this was probably about 92, oh, about 94, actually. I know it was 94, because then we got offered Beck for the same night, and it was while uh, Loser was uh, on the radio. Okay. And uh, so we said, well, let's take that into the Cattle Club. Uh, now we're competing, we already got Pearl Jam. I'm going against us now we're going against ourselves but we can't pass up back we got to do this and better to have one of the shows be successful than you know we don't know which one it'll be but when as it turned out beck did about 500 people kai Cole, mother hips did a thousand people and then we found out later that eddie vetter was up on stage at cal expo like first time we played this town we played the cattle club and we're just like oh we own it we're just kidding it was just like oh, such man. a great night it was just great because three shows like that could even happen in town yeah and and then just to know that in some way we were a part of all three excellent you know and it was just like no way it was just such a great feeling it just was remarkable there's a great side story to that side story and that was i went and ran the crest show that night and so i had to leave some people in charge of the cattle club that night so i was working with a guy i was working with brian at that time i was working with a guy named troy davis who was far's manager and so uh, i left troy in charge of the beck show so a very sad thing when you get this busy, as you know, being in a band, when you're in a band, you don't get to see all the other things going on the same night you're playing. But count my blessings as well, because our show ended uh, early being a crash show. And I called over to the Cal Club. How'd it go over there? You know, it's like July. They're like, oh, my God, it was great, but it's so hot. I'm like, oh, I don't doubt that. 500 degrees and 500 people in, in, in July. It's got to be insane. They're yeah. like, oh, my God, it was terrible. I'm like, oh, I'm glad I was here because it wasn't that hot here. Yeah. And we finished over there and I drove back over to the Cal Club to kind of square things up, make sure everything was OK. And I get in there and, you know, the show's been over 45 minutes and the place is just like sauna. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're not kidding it is hot here this is fucking ridiculous oh my god how did anyone survive this how many people were here yeah how hot was it because i've never and i just feel this blast of hot air blowing down from the ceiling they'd had the heaters on for the entire show oh my god 500 people in july with the heaters blowing full blast i'm like oh my god and everybody had a great time They went home two pounds later. To me, to, to, to me, that's the kind of story that when that would happen, I'd go, typical cattle club. Whatever anybody thought of the club, that's what I knew. I'd be, God, so typical. So these were the people 
we were all doing it together. And I was in that position to make these things happen. But after many years and no life, when you're doing a show six nights a week, man, that's it. And, and you know, you're putting up posters, you know, for six shows a week and you're trying to promote them and you're not doing it with internet because that doesn't exist. And you're, you're, you're doing the footwork and you're just doing, doing, doing. You're not going to any other shows. Seven years, you know. And I really missed the newspaper. I'd been doing it while doing the club, but it was becoming more and more sporadic because it was just, we were doing more shows and it was just getting more and more difficult for me to do that paper, which I thought was an important function of what we did. We were writing about local bands, but it was from, we were writing about the cattle club. Like all the stories were bands that were playing the cattle club. And we had the cattle club bowling team and we'd go bowl the band and, uh, they, they were funny little stories and we'd create characters. We had our bartender, Bob, and we wrote a column called Bob's Bitchin' Brew. And it would be some mythical story about how Bob was involved in the Kennedy assassination. And here's a drink recipe that goes along with that story. And just these, they were very cattle club kind of funny, you know. It's like a newsletter brought to newspaper life. And it was very, very, you know, satirical. But we only did 12 issues over four years. And I just had the writing bug. Uh, like I said, you know, when I was in, you know, high school, junior high, I thought I was going to go be a comedy writer. And Dennis and I, we we bonded over writing when we were in school. We both got on the newspaper staff. We both wrote funny stories. We both handed them to each other in class. And we just snicker in history or wherever we were over these ridiculous stories we had written. And we, we both wanted to write. And I had created this means for us to do it. I'd started this newspaper and Dennis come write. And he did a column called The Master Bastard, which was hilarious. And other pe funny people. And that was really important to me too. But we only did 12 issues. And so there was that thing that I hadn't fully explored yet that I still had a million ideas for and really wanted to do. And then there was this thing that I don't want to say I'd done to death, but I had created the template and it was running successfully. And, and basically what that came down to was in the summer of 96, summer of 95, I just I just had done it. I was Jonesing to do the paper, and I was like, "Your heart I was need, calling elsewhere." I needed, I needed a bigger overview. I needed, I was everything was cattle club centric, and I wanted to step the paper up and write about the whole of the scene, all the things that had grown in the wake of the cattle club. Now, or the cattle club was still there, but all these other clubs had popped up. Uh, live music had become viable in Sacramento, not just live music, live original music, because it was all blues and covers and stuff like that before. Now these bands were playing everywhere they could, for better or for worse, but it was happening, and uh, and there were bands that weren't playing the they weren't necessarily cattle bands. I wanted to write about them, and I wanted to just become that. I wanted to start a good live music publication because I didn't believe we had that. And I, I didn't think I could do both, and I was right. So I, I just picked a date. I said, Halloween, 1995, final show. It was like three months out. And the whole point of that was if I say it, not only is it going to be true, but if I say it, it's like a going-out-of-business Persian rug you know, thing. Yeah. It's just like, everybody's just like, I got to go before they close. Right. And everybody played, you know, everybody came in, Cake and LGS and everybody came in, Mother Hips, everybody came in and did that one last huge cattle club show. Mm -hmm. And we were charging like 12 bucks and, you know, filibuster, everybody came in and we made a killing. We made a four and the, the, the shows were packed and the bands made a killing and I made a killing and it's what I needed to do because I didn't know when I was going to make money again. I was like, I, I how long is it going to take before a paper makes money? I don't know. Right. And, and humorously, if I had started the paper immediately after the Cattle Club, I, I may have made money a lot sooner. But uh, I, I literally, the guy that was going to start it with me, who was going to sell the ads, because I knew I didn't want to do that, he uh, got himself some a cushy position with, um, I think, the Sacramento Bee. And uh, suddenly I was on my own again. I'm like, oh, I'm doing this, but I don't have an ad sales guy. Well, I can start this so I have an ad sales guy. And I never did get one. So sometime around April, I'm like, fuck it. I just guess I better start this thing. So I was like six months. I wasn't doing anything. I read the entire Kurt Vonnegut library and uh, just enjoyed not doing a show five nights a week. Real quick. What was the, the final Halloween show? 
I think you say it's Kaikom Fallacy. I know As Yet Entitled was on there. Um, I know it was four bands. It was huge. It had to be Kai Kohn, though. I mean, I'm, I'm saying I'm pretty sure it was Kai Kohn. I know it was Kai Kohn, but that's because it had to be Kai Kohn. They were the first band we sold out the Crest Theater with. As far as I know, they were the first local band to ever sell out the Crest Theater unsigned. These guys were just, they were the first, like, grassroots, hey, there's no reason we're selling this place out except that we just made this friggin' happen in Sacramento. They were our buddies. I love those guys, and that was it. That was our big blowout. Now, humorously, because this is how these things go, boy, talk about just, like, undermining even your best laid plans. Halloween night was the last Cattle Club show, and then we got offered Sublime for November 1st. (laughs) And we went, all right. <laughs> but we're not calling it Cattle Club. Right. It's Bojangles. That's, <laughs> November 1st is Bojangles. So we did do actually a, a Sublime on November 1st. But Still under the Cattle Club? No. Was, it no. was Bojangles? I, I don't know. I was like, no, this is the party. This is yeah. the final Cattle Club. This is it. So November 1st was November the first, 1st Bojangles was show. Bojangles, yeah. With Sublime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so lame. It's like, God damn it. Well, you know, I mean, it's it's almost the changing of the guard at that point. The very funny thing was how much the uh, DJs, the, the gay DJs wanted us out of there because they had a concept for something they wanted to do there. And they had their own gay club that they wanted to start out and they wanted us out of there. Okay, so we, we were in there for November 1st, but they just were like just ready for us to be gone because they had a club that they were going to call New Sodom. And um, New Sodom was scheduled to basically open as soon as we were gone. Uh-huh. They just could not wait for us to get out of there. So at the Sublime show, they had all these anatomically uh, exaggerated naked uh, male torsos, the armless, legless, mannequin types, not everythingless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, just hanging fluorescent yellow, fluorescent pink, fluorescent green all around the club, just these huge dongs hanging off of mannequins. Spray painted with black lights on them. I mean, it just looked, it was so tacky and wrong and stupid. And the place was called New Sodom. That lasted about two weeks. Two weeks. Oh, God. <laughs> I was going to say, how long? Uh, it's so dumb. And it was like, Eric, like, hey, Eric, you going to go to New Sodom over the sound system? I'm like yelling to Eric at the soundboard. He's like, oh, yeah, New Sodom's starting next week. I'm like, I can't wait to go to New Sodom. It was so stupid. <laughs> so, but that was that was it. We were out there. So yeah. So the you know it's like it's so weird. I thought like I'll step out of here and someone else will pick it up. And I'm not saying that nobody's done a single show since. But the way we did it was a very specific way. It had no. And everything's got cronyism, I guess. But our cronyism was really based on bands that we thought were good. And and it was really based on being smart, bands that we thought we could make grow. And it wasn't the sake of growing a band so that, oh, let's grow that band so we can all make a lot of money. Growing a band meant you had a band to put smaller bands on with. Every band that could draw 500 people meant you could take a band that drew nobody and put them on the show. It was a safety net. It was it was, it was was insurance. It was like, God damn, yeah, you want local bands that can draw 500 people because you could take all these wonderful new bands that are just starting out that are really good that otherwise would be playing in front of 20 people for the next two years and you could stick them on these shows and get them exposure you can't do that when everybody is drawing 50 people it's just everybody just keeps playing in front of the same 50 60 or 70 people until you have shows that are doing 500 to a thousand people you can't really get momentum and it, it was a it was a great thing to have and i thought it would continue but a lot of different factors contributed to that system falling apart one in particular after new sodom was gone and Bojangles started letting promoters back in to do shows, they implemented a bar guarantee. And the bar guarantee was, you know, it's always been an all-ages room, or at least shortly after I got involved, it became all-ages because at my insistence. But bar guarantee was, uh, we want to make 
I'm going to think, I think it was a thousand, maybe it was 2000. I don't remember. Let's say a thousand. The bar needs to make a minimum of a thousand dollars. If it doesn't make a minimum of a thousand dollars, you pay it out of the door. Now, I'm sure there were a few people who learned the hard way that if you went in there with a show that was hardcore all ages and drawing high school kids, the bar may only do $600 and then you're going to owe $400 off the door and that's a chunk of money. Bar may only do $300 and you're going to owe $700 off the door. Um, so what happened very quickly was in one month, Filibuster got booked there six times by six different promoters because they were the band that could do bar. Wow. And since apparently they weren't telling the, each promoter that they were playing there everybody's like well if we get filibuster in here we'll do a thousand dollar bar guarantee right and so that was you could you could jokingly say you know almost like hyperbole yeah yeah it's a great idea till someone break books filibuster in there six times in one month and it sounds like a ridiculous uh, hyperbolic statement but then it actually happened and and it's just like okay worst case scenario there you go you really needed to Things need to be methodical. Uh, this isn't San Francisco. It's a very finite scene. With no brass ring, with no place that was the standout place to play anymore like the Cattle Club was, then every place was as good as any other place. Mm. And when every place is as good as any other place, everyone starts playing every place. And when everybody starts playing every place, they kind of regionalize their draw or they create subsections of their draw. Like, I really like those guys, but I like seeing them at Shine. Oh, I really like them, but I like seeing them at Luna's. Oh, I really like them too, but I like seeing them at um, Naked Lounge. And so the bands never even really get traction. It's like, you know, it'd be really cool, guys, is if we saw all of your people at one show. But where is that place? You've never defined it. And because you've never defined it, they're not even going to go there. They're going to, oh, I know they're trying to do the big thing at such and the Harlow's, but I'll wait to see them at Shine. You know, the, it, it, it was put out there. The genie was out of the bottle. And um, it just, it broke. The, the, it broke the ecosystem. There's nothing wrong with going and playing a coffee shop if you say, did it acoustic, and you made it special for that reason. And you said, hey, the only way you're going to see them do this is they're going to play here this way. You know, nurture the thing that's working. And um, th that's not what happened. It got broken, and then new things have been built upon the broken pieces. Mm -hmm. So the very foundation, I think, of what we're experiencing right now, which is a lot of bands playing in a lot of places, and until a place comes along that is so undeniably good for the bands and so appreciated by the people, if that can happen, and the bands go, that's where we need to play. Because, I mean, we I don't want to say we were iron-fisted, but I would literally say to a band at the Cattle Club, it's like, hey, man, I want you guys to play here in October. And they'd be like, oh, we're playing um, Old Ironsides at the end of September. And I'd be like, okay, forget it. Let's let's look at December then. And they'd be like, what? We can't play Sacramento for two months? I'm like, no, you can't play Sacramento for two months. Go play Davis. Go play Auburn. Go play Grass Valley. Go play Stockton. Go play Chico. There are so many places you can play, but why do you feel like you need to play Sacramento every two weeks? There's nothing to aspire to. There's nothing that that is the, the place that makes you go, hey, we better back off the other places because this is the place. Well, here's, here's a timeline for you. It's really interesting. It really embraces, maybe maybe we're in a third wave of something right now, but I'm, I don't know. The scene, if I may, that emerged in, 19, in the early 80s, this new explosion of music, this punk rock, new wave, not your bloated, fat, classic rock. And by that, I mean, a friend of mine said, so, he said something like, well, rock got a gut on it. 
You know, that's yeah. what happened in the late 80s. Rock got a gut. The yeah. Who got a gut. And Zeppelin got a gut. And they were they were middle-aged. They weren't the same anymore. It wasn't like this new thing that was exploding with the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and whatever, the Dead Kennedys. And, it, you know, this was lean and mean. It was rock and roll again. All the, And it took it to an nth degree with punk and hardcore and all of that. But, but what's interesting about it is those of us who emerged in that era... It's a cutoff. It's it's like a meteor hit, and and everything before it was wiped out. It's it's like that that whole they they were all they still they still existed, but they were they were just kind of buried. Yeah. But that hasn't happened since. So many of the bands they all, we all moved forward. I mean, you could go to old Ironsides and see bands that we know are twenty years old. And I know they're old. I'm like, oh god, that band's twenty years old, and yet they still could play with some of the new bands that exist right now. And like ten years ago. I couldn't say that I would know guys in their 60s who were still semi-relevant in the scene. And and now here I am 50, and so there are guys that are about 10 years older than me that's, that are still semi-relevant in the scene, you know, uh, or, or more than that. This is crazy. That did not exist 20 years ago. 20 years ago, there weren't 50-year-old dudes that meant anything in the scene because they would have been, they, they were taken out by the meteor. You know, and uh, so it is interesting to see that this timeline is so more connected. It's more the, the start and where we are now is more relevant and linear. Mm-hmm. Like it's hard to go before 1980 or 78 and find relevance. Now, I can say that because that's my era. And I'm sure there's somebody going, dude, you, it's hard to go before 1992. And I could see where they might think that, but they probably don't even realize how many people from that scene are still relevant and yeah. playing and involved in the scene that they are a part of. Right. You know, uh, it's more linear, you know, but I don't know anybody of the cattle club era or any of that, that grew up going to anything that was before 1978. That wasn't anything. It was a different thing. Stuff we would never done. Right. This, you know, again, pre-meteor as it were. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. The interesting timeline that I always appreciate, especially reflective of the cattle club era is, um, where are we at with how music is listened to now? And, and basically representative of my music collection of which I have a ton of vinyl uh, and much of it was stuff that was, I bought pre CD, but sometimes I just buy vinyl cause I like vinyl. I have way too many CDs, which now are, you know, might as well be ashtrays or coasters. Uh, they've all been put into my iTunes and I'm fine with that because I, otherwise I have shelves that eat up my entire house that have CDs that never get pulled off of them. So I'm like, what's the, they might as well be in boxes in the attic. They, I mean, I hate to say that, but that's what CDs have become. But there was this weird moment, horrible, sad even, but it, it, it happened. And that was around um, 86 to 93 when there was no way a band could even consider putting out a CD unless they were signed to a label. That wasn't even a possibility. And putting out a record was something that happened occasionally that bands would do, but it was a pricey endeavor, not as pricey as a CD. But eventually putting out a record was kind of a, a dumb gambit because records were dead, but CDs were too expensive. So in the in the interim, bands put out tapes, and they put out cassette tapes. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, for better or for worse, this is the era that the Cattle Club came into being. And so the music collection that I have that basically represents that era is boxes and boxes of cassette tapes. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, Cake, Deftones, yeah. Pivot, Tiger Trap, uh, all these great bands on friggin' tape. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> it's just, it's so sad. And just, I've got hundreds and hundreds. Bianchi, Eric Bianchi, our sound guy at the Cow Club, was telling me, he just moved recently, the archive that he, uh, you know, unearthed in his garage moving. You know, he knew it was there. He's just never gone back and dug through it. But it's tapes. Yeah. He's afraid to play any of them. I said, yeah, don't even until you know you're transferring it to, to digital. Because he didn't want to play, he doesn't want to 
hurt them in any way. Yeah, which is sad. But that is an interesting era. Bands did tape releases. Sometimes they do the worst thing ever, the single release, where they would release the cassette oh. single. Oh, we're doing a single release. Hold on. Let me see if I could be less excited. No, I can't I was going to say, that's the first time I've actually even heard that word. I remember how oh, popular got that, they were. I've but. got that word on posters. <laughs> the single release. Right. One of my favorite things about the Clash poster next to my bed is the fact that it says on cassette and video, you know, oh. like like CD nor DVD is anywhere on the poster. Should Just say cassette and video. On cassette for a limited time. Because <laughs> if you buy it, it ain't going to last. Right, yeah. I mean, seriously, it's like I've got old vinyl, I've got old CDs. I One thing I never did, I never bought like big name band cassettes. Mm -hmm. I went right from vinyl to CD when I could. The idea of like going out and buying a Clash cassette, that's so weird to me, but yeah. that that era existed and yeah. it, you know it's part of that that tapestry but you and know it's, it's made a resurgence. But you know but you know kids they they don't understand. It's like uh, I I a school teacher said to me a few years ago that she was doing an art project and she said to the kids, "If you were in a band, I want you to uh, draw what your album cover would look like. And one of the kids said, what's an album cover? Oh, that's an art form in itself. It's, it, but this is, this is not even saying because CDs stomped all over it, which they did. This is because it's like, oh, I've got an MP3 player. What's an album cover? I don't like hearing about things like that. <laughs> in the world. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, considering... Um, in your time of, of really doing a lot of shows at Cattle Club, were there any that you personally kind of remember as being kind of like, wow, like even in retrospect? Pop Defect was an amazing band. We all loved Pop Defect. And I was talking the other night about somebody who literally said to me, I used to love seeing Pop Defect there. Those guys could never draw more than 30 people. And we'd constantly put them on great shows. They were from L.A. And they were excellent. They were excellent. And they never amounted to anything in Sacramento. I don't. They worked. So they were the hardest touring band I knew. And amazing. Never never went anywhere. Just one of those bands. There was a band called Harm Farm that I really liked a lot. It was a violin player, kind of in a Camper Van Beethoven vein, but a little more uh, harebrained, a little more uh, gonzo. And I uh, loved them. Brought them in a few times. I think they were from North Carolina or something like that. Just amazing. Fantastic. I loved them. Um, there were bands that you know were fun but not good but just enjoyable and uh, and they got big or they didn't like we loved when Green Jelly would come in and play and we would always have so much fun when they played we had them in a couple times and by the third time we we knew what we were getting into so we actually created this annual event and we did it only twice but it would be when they were in town and it was called the Miss Cattle Club pageant it was just this ridiculous meat themed beauty pageant and that was really fun um, <laughs> uh, we would sometimes make movies of ridiculous things and show them up on the screen we had there of like I remember one time we did an acoustic show it was all acoustic before we knew what the term unplugged before anybody was doing unplugged I, I came up with the idea of Light Night, L-I-T-E, and it was to make all the bands play acoustic, which nobody was doing. It was kind of, you know, no one did that. And uh, so the idea of like, uh, you know, far acoustic and and uh, I don't even remember who all was on the show, but they were all rock bands. They were all going to play acoustic. And uh, we were, I never decided what the order was going to be. So I thought it would be fun just to draw their names out of a hat. And in my mind, I just kind of in, evolved this little scenario where it's like, is that even fair enough? Certainly if I'm drawing names out of a hat, someone will even scoff at that. And in my mind, I took it to the next degree, which was, well, what if I did this? Oh, but surely then someone would say this. Well, what if I did this? Well, then surely 
someone would say that. And I said, well, then that's what we're going to do. We're going to have someone in the audience who is a plant, who literally, no matter how democratic we try to pick who the next band is, this person's going to bah humbug that moment. Till it finally escalated to the degree where I have Matthias Bombal come out uh, with a suitcase handcuffed to his wrist that has the next artist in there as a, as a chosen by the accounting firm of Price Waterhouse, and it's like it just gradually like blew up to that. You know, Dennis Dennis Yet comes on stage as a blind man to pick one of the names, and and is called out for not really being blind. And uh, and then we shot a little film up on the on the screen. It was a black and white that Bianchi and I shot, and it was really fun because we. Did this thing where we put a record on a turntable and we did this with our fingers so it was like like the film was all warped from you know 40 years ago yeah. and it was like at the firm of price waterhouse we take great dedication and pride and you know always you know and it's just this and it was a picture of me with my back and my fedora and i'm going through the rigmarole of what has to be done for this ballot to be certified and it's just <laughs> It was so, it was shot in black and white, looked all <laughs> scratchy. And we just did that on a lark one afternoon. Let, let's make a movie about, you know, yeah. what the Pricewaterhouse accounting process is. Yeah. And we showed it. It was hilarious. And we would just come up with things like that. You know, it was, it was before we started the newspaper. So we had all these creative energies. Um, I remember, uh, what was another movie we made one time? Uh, oh, I know what it was. We, uh, Eric was in a band called Little Elvis. And it was Kepi. Eric and Steve Marshall, and they did nothing but Elvis movie songs. And they'd been playing for a few months, and then they were going to do, I don't remember what the, it was Elvis's birthday, I guess, or Elvis's death day, actually. And uh, we were going to do uh, a celebration at the club of all these bands doing Elvis songs, but of course, uh, Little Elvis was going to be the cornerstone band. And we thought, let's um, let's create a fake moment. Let's call this, this is the, um, I'm trying to remember, I guess it would have been 25th, 25th anniversary of the television's longest running music show Elvis for everybody and you are the Elvis for everybody house band little Elvis you've been on the show since the beginning and you do nothing but play Elvis songs and I'm the host Bobby Day and uh, and I'm still the host 25 years later and remarkably we've somehow survived even past the death of Elvis and it's just really a testament to how great this band is and the, the premise was we shot all this footage in black and white and we, we showed it to the audience as classic clips from the Elvis for, for Everyone show, like bloopers, and just and, and me uh, uh, selling cool cigarettes as our sponsor in like 1968, and so it's like me looking very young in a turtleneck and just you know not not hip 60s, like just slightly off hip 60s. Mm -hmm. now I'm older, I've got gray hair and these bad glasses and a stupid mustache, and I'm like, who is that young guy? You know, pointing at the television. <laughs> and um, and a little Elvis came out and they did their first set, which was uh, supposed to be them uh, at the, when the show first started and they were doing uh, Elvis songs from the 50s, then Elvis songs from the 60s. And the whole shtick was they would come out every week and play Elvis's hit songs from that week, right? That was the whole premise of the show. Right. So how did they keep it going after Elvis died? Well, that was the genius of the band. And that was the third set where they came out and did songs that they suspect Elvis might have done if he were still alive. <laughs> and it was songs like Losing My Religion and Unskinny Bop and Welcome to the Jungle. But they were so hilarious because they like, Welcome to the Jungle. Uncle. 
You know, it was just, it was so <laughs> funny. And uh, yeah, it was, we had the bicentennial episode, the never before seen bicentennial episode, which we showed on the television. And it was all of us backstage and we got our shirts off and bad hairdos and there's all this red, white and blue stuff everywhere. And we've just found out that Elvis has died or something. I don't remember how we tied it because that was actually two years after the bicentennial. But it was like some ridiculous special like that. And it was just like... <laughs> So stupid. But that was a night. Yeah. And we thought of it like, I think the day before the show, we thought of that. And we ran to, we ran to the Cattle Club. We shot all the footage that day. And while we were there, we had this idea of the Elvis for Everyone dancers. And that's what we would show on the screen when we were doing costume changes and whatnot. And we would just play, you know... Elvis go-go music like bossa nova bossa nova and while that stuff was playing over the sound system there's this black and white footage of these four chicks just that we just filmed dancing in bad go-go costumes yeah. that don't, they weren't even listening to the music that we're playing what's great is oh when we did this Abe Cunningham from the Deftones and uh, Juan who was in um, Tinfed I think showed up and they had long hair and our friend Sandy was there and, and she did makeup and we're like please let us do makeup and put you in dresses and be two of our dancers. <laughs> so I actually have this video of like Abe, he's like 18 years old, you know, drummer for the death, dressed as a woman doing these stupid 60s go-go dances with two other women and the four of them are just doing these stupid synchronized dances together and that's what we showed up on there. It's like, it's just hilarious. It's so funny that that exists. Yeah, so you you talking about that immediately, just just hearing that kind of a scenario immediately makes me think of Alive and Kicking, which was one of the biggest pinnacles moments uh, relics, whatever you want to call it, of my life. I mean, I even remember being in high school and just holding the live and kicking and being surrounded by like hundreds of kids that were like, had no idea what the fuck I was reading and getting excited about bands that they were like, who? And, and we got to do a story. We got to we got to finally have you in the paper. And you know, which is why when I said you don't know what this means to me, you it, know. <laughs> it, here's the thing: it means so much to me. I miss it so much. Uh, I probably don't go a month or two that I don't think like, God, I wish I could put them on the cover. Mm -hmm. I wish I could do a cover story with them. Wouldn't it be a blast to do? You know that thing. I I, I miss writing. I miss writing. So much that I won't write because I feel like I, I have to write for a reason. And I'm not just going to write for the sake of writing. I can't. I can't operate like that. I really do know that uh, I need it to build up inside of me till it just explodes. Till I just like find that that moment that I need to do it again. Need yeah. to do it. But um, alive and kicking. If I've never explained this to you, but it was um, it was my idea to do a music scene paper. But that nothing to me seems more boring than writing about music or studios or records or you know so what do you think of your new album i think it's the best thing we've ever done oh kill me now <laughs> and, and, and and who's that for right who's that for that's for the band and their six friends and their mom i thought i need to write something that appeals to everybody if even they don't give shit about music or the band yeah it needs to be real it needs to be about what good comedy is uh, you relate to it in comedy. Why has it got to be comedy? I can't help. I just, because because I think one of the catalysts for starting the paper was these bands, especially Kai Cole, I think. I, I will give a, give a lot of it to them, would just always tell me the fucking funniest stories. And we would just die. We'd be drinking beer and exchanging stories and, and you'd just go on. These dialogues, these conversations would be hilarious. We'd break into characters and, and I'd think to myself, I wish people could experience the band like this because I know how great they are on stage, but sometimes when you know a band like this, it makes you want to see them on stage even more. Like, yeah. you just you just it's a different thing you just get it more you know i don't think people realize if you all if all you ever did was see kai Cone live i don't know if you know how hilarious they were but they were hilarious right and i thought i need to get that and so i decided that i i would do this newspaper 
but I wanted it to be a newspaper. I'd known about Mercy Beat back in the Liverpool days of England, and it was kind of like a, a people magazine of sorts, or, a, you know, it's like so-and-so left this band to join that band. So-and-so, hey, who just got signed? Find out what drummer is on the blah, blah, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't want anything like that per se. That's a little too wonky. That's a little too much like, yes, we're all in the music. So I was like, no, I'm going to make a newspaper that is skewed like through this weird rock and roll prism. Like there's going to be um, a sports team, a sports section, and that's going to be us drunken idiots challenging a band to go bowl with us. <laughs> and then we're going to write about it from this sports fanatic point of view. Like this is all that matters in the world. And I look at it now and I think it's very Colbert in a way where you took on these characters and you just stuck by them, even though they're ridiculous characters. Like my, my chewing the fat character that a persona that I would get into, this guy's just like totally pro meat and fucking vegetarians are loser hippies. And you know, and it's like, and then we take the, the, the bands out to eat meat. And if there was a vegetarian in the band, he was going to hear about it. And, uh, <laughs> You know, and just stick to that character and, you know, tell me your best meat story. And because we created these backdrops, it really brought out great stories from the bands. And I and I recorded them on tape and I tried to transcribe them verbatim so that you, you would get the feel of a conversation. So it, very, it felt very conversational. It felt very like you were in the room and you were hearing these funny stories and we're laughing at each other and with each other. And so we had like our, you know, our food column, which was chewing the fat, the mm -hmm. greasy spoon. And we had the bowling, which was sports. We had a thing called car corn. Corner, which was automotive and that uh, the joke there was always to find uh, a band member with the most piece of shit car and then we would highlight it like it was some like great car right and it would always just be so funny be some beat up old station wagon he'd tell us what was in the glove compartment or you know things that were, don't, even, don't even have anything to do with cars like what do you got in the glove compartment you know because what do we know about cars this damn house which was the home repair column and someone would come over to my house they'd have to fix my fence or something and we'd make a trip to the hardware store or uh drink it and drive which was always my favorite, which was uh, we would buy a bunch of beer, go to the drive-in and review movies. So I got to write movie reviews, but I, all throughout it all, I'm interviewing bands. So this idea was like, come along for the ride. It's awesome. It's like you, you're with these idiots while they are doing this thing. It all kind of came from that kind of gonzo post David Letterman irony all that stuff that you know that that kind of humor yeah you know where you're just deconstructing things and, and making fun of everything yeah. and um i was de deconstructing a newspaper and creating a rock and roll newspaper i always thought it would be fun to do a live and kicking as a tv show and i always thought it would be fun to like while the band we're dr cats <laughs> you know mm -hmm. and they're lying on the couch and they would tell stories and while they're telling stories the story is animated yeah yeah you know it's like i i ran into my mom she's got a cannoli you know and it's like a woman standing there with a cannoli and the squeaky lines yeah yeah it would be really fun that like while the band is telling the story to do really bad dramatic reenactments with actors who are not the bands you know walking through the drive-in at night with beer or something it's just <laughs> really badly filmed like bad dramatic reenactments yeah. are I think it'd be really fun to do a show like that where you That's just awesome. like once again deconstruct the whole premise of those kind of entertainment shows yeah, yeah. and build it around those stupid stories where we are drinking beer and we are you know just being dummies half of my photo albums that I of shit that I took off my wall when I had to move out you know I went through the albums the other day taking out actual photographs because the, the sticky stuff eats right you know eats away yeah. and so a lot of the stuff I can't lift you know because it's but I realized I was flipping through and I was like shit I, ha I have to have at least 18 issues of Alive and Kicking in here just cut up oh like whether it be like the photos from the interview or the interview or the end of the show page and there was the picture of the band that's another funny thing about Alive and Kicking and, and you know dedication to it like that that's really wonderful it's so funny though because it's also kind of strangely fanatical in that 
obviously it was put together by someone who's a local music fanatic mm-hmm. and it was enjoyed by people who are lo- local music fanatics or or not they just enjoyed reading it maybe never saw a single band i know people like that who just ne- never went to shows but always loved the paper yeah talk about nostalgia yeah i mean did i did that paper for 17 years i don't think people realize it was around that long 17 years and we did like 100 almost 160 issues so there was a lot i mean there's a body of work there but it is just it's now a time capsule exactly i think it'll be entertaining in some ways but even some of the touchstones don't exist anymore just the way that we did things going to the drive-in and trying to find a speaker that works you know that we could hang on the on the car i always wondered like if someone ever read it somewhere else and just thought oh this is so funny this is cool and, and just like stole our ideas outright and they're gonna run with them and i'm gonna be the schmuck in sacramento who worked his ass off for 17 years and you know put himself sixty thousand dollars in debt yes you heard it here <laughs> sixty thousand dollars in debt sticking with that paper far longer than i should have thinking i could turn it around in the age of dying print media well that paper saved me on that tour that it was the tour that just fell apart the van died the light when I were driving on the turnpike with just the flashers to see in between big rigs and shit. Andrew came out to document it. He went home halfway through. So the whole way home, we're just moping, van's dead. Who knows what's going to happen? And I'm just randomly getting texts from people being like, yo, you, you really shit off the side of a fucking highway guardrail. At, at I was six, gonna say, that was such know, a like, funny story. Yeah, I mean, I totally remember the story. Yeah. It was so funny. <laughs> It kind of was our claim to fame. If you wanted to hear the best band shit or vomit story, you'd read it in Alive and Kick. If you want to, if you want to read about a good stomach flu, we probably had that story. We had, we had the scoop. During this time of you doing the paper, at some point in that is when you started doing the park shows, right? Remember, remember when I was saying uh, I uh, started the paper after closing the Cattle Club, mm-hmm. and that was '96. Yeah. I got the park shows in 97. Okay. That was and my first year. Have so they really, done park shows before Oh, that? yeah. They'd been going. I came in in what was the fifth year. Okay. But they weren't. They were literally cover bands. Okay. Bands from Reno. That's all they were. I mean, Far did play one at one point. Mm-hmm. But I think when Far played, there was like 175 people there. Um, the stage was on the other side of the park. I, you know, I went in and made a few changes, just sensible things, you know, because I believed that we were going to grow. I believed it was going to get big, and it did. And I, I mean, in my first, man, it's like day and night. If you look at the year before bookings and you look at me going out there, and it was fun for me because now I was a year into Alive and Kicking outside the Cattle Club, and it really was my goal to uh, work with everyone doing music in Sacramento validly in some way and and not be constrained by only what I could do at the Cattle Club, which was not everything. And so I was getting, you know, I was doing stories with Johnny Guitar Knox and 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 then booking him on the Friday night concerts. Mm-hmm. You know, I was doing shows with Mumbo Gumbo and, and and then doing and then writing about him in the paper. Right. And it was just it's just fun. It really broadened um just everything for me. It just was, you know, I I it's, it was not better than what I was doing before. It was just different because I missed what I had at the Cattle Club, what I was able to accomplish there. But then I did move into something that meant a lot to me. I was given the opportunity to take this event, which was doing okay. And eventually over the course of two years, two or three years, uh, you know, six or 7,000 people out there. And I, and I really put myself under my own microscope. I did that to myself. I was pretty much like, okay, I really just got to check myself. Is this cronyism? Am I am I spreading it around right? I would call other people. I'd call like Marina at the Torch Club. I'd go, who is the standout blues band to you this year? I'd hear what you have to say about that, you know. I wouldn't ever think that I knew everything, you know. But, you know, I had my finger on the pulse of a lot of things. And part of what I, I knew was who to talk to. Yeah. And um, I really feel like I created a diverse 
an obviously successful series. And I did that for 15 years, you know, and um, it was it was I would say it was bigger every year. It had its ups and downs. Mm -hmm. It's a shame that the final year was that I did it was that I that I got basically booted out of there on such a bad year. Uh, we just had a really bad weather year, and why they couldn't express that to the board that they needed to express that to. Hey, what's going on with this thing? Oh, I don't know. Maybe we should get rid of the guy who's booking it. Try something new. It's like, well, no, that's not what you need to do. You guys all know we had a bad weather year. Next year's going to be great. It's just, but they just, they just threw me under the bus. And it was, it was heartbreaking. I, I'm still, I'm still, you know. Do you feel comfortable in talking about, I guess, kind of how, how? I don't feel you know? uncomfortable talking about it. Um, I can quite comfortably say that it, it does piss me off even still now going into the third year that I'm not doing it. It was very lame. I mean, it was very chicken shit. They didn't discuss it with me. They didn't say to me, why do you think last year did poorly? And there's nobody that understood the event better than me. None of them did. They understood things that they did. Mm -hmm. Now, I say these things as if I'm being a prick, but honestly, I would never have thrown any of them under the bus. We were all working on it together. It's, it wasn't an easy thing to do. And I like the idea that there's a learning curve. And I like to say, hey, I like to look at things and go, that didn't work. Let's do this next year. And that's the way I go at things. And I felt that those people I was working with were all people that operated well like that. So whether, you know, I felt like they dropped the ball on this or that, it wouldn't phase me. The show still did great. And I'd be like, hey, you know, if I can make a suggestion, blah, blah, blah. But the one year that was the final year for me there, uh, the first several weeks were 50 degrees. We even got rained out one week. Mm -hmm. They are our marketing person had moved on just before the season started and the marketing was not up to snuff. And here's a here's a very indicative story. Uh, they would tell me you have till the end of March to get the lineup together. I'd go, OK, I take that at face value. I have till the end of March. And I would play around with it right up to the last minute because bands are going on tour and things are changing. I'm trying to optimize, get the best thing I can. I don't want to book it too soon because that may mean some bands are like, I just can't commit. And I'd be fuck, I really want them. I'll hold out. I got till the end of March. I'll see what really shakes, you know, whatever. So I would hold out. So they started calling me like three or four days before the end of March. And they're like, hey, we need that list from you. I'm like, listen, I have a list that's about 80% done. I could tell you it's 100% done. I know who's doing the event, but I think I'm going to take so-and-so on the 10th and switch them on the 24th and because it just works better that way. It makes more sense. And I'm just trying to get okays from everybody. So here's the thing. Some of this is tentative and some of it's not. I'd prefer not to give it to you yet. Can I give it to you in like four days? No, 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 no. We, we, need, we want the list now. And I go, okay, well, I did this last year and I asked you not to publish it and you published it. So if I give it to you this year, can you please not publish it? till I give you the final list in about four days because it's just three or four days away and they're like because you told me I have the in the march they're like yeah yeah that's no problem we just we just want to you know show us which ones are confirmed we want to run with those I'm like okay I'll, that's fine so to their credit they did that they took the list and they only put out the ones that were confirmed and, and that was fine so three four days later I give them the final list and then they released the wrong list. This is the kind of stuff I was dealing with. And then I had bands call me, dude, aren't we playing on such and such date? Like, yes, 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 I'm sorry. I am trying to get them to change that on the website. You know, things like that. And it's like, I did not drop the ball. I, th I think it was a surprise to a lot of people. I mean, yeah. the people that knew you and even the people that didn't. It just turned it into such a pedestrian event. And I'm so sad about that. In your opinion, somebody that, you know, wants to be a promoter, has that drive, what would you suggest to someone? I would say, um, if I can nutshell this, I have to think about this. I don't know if people recognize what needs to happen. Like, if even if it popped up, even if it was there in front of them, I don't know if they'd recognize it as the thing that needed to be nurtured. And that thing needs to be a room that holds about 200 or 300 people. That's all ages. And the bands need to take it seriously and get out of town as if that's some uh, undoable thing. 
It's like, well, dude, I've heard bands literally say to me, oh, Jerry doesn't like it when a band plays three times a week. It's like, no, I just don't like it when they do it in Midtown. I love it if you play three times a week. Go to San Francisco, go to Davis, go anywhere. You don't even have to go far. Every 30 minutes is a whole different group of people. You know, if all you did was drive from, you know, Sacramento to Stockton to Modesto to Fresno to, you know, Santa Cruz to Santa Barbara to Anaheim to L.A. to San Diego, and that's all you did was you never even left the state of California. It doesn't matter if you're playing to different people every night. So that idea of like, oh, the only way we could play three nights a week is in, uh, within uh, five minutes of our house. You know, it's like, so that's the most broken thing, I think. If a handful of bands value themselves, find a room where they can then show that value. Like, oh, we are not playing very often, but when we play, we do 300 people because we've obviously been playing everywhere forever, so people know us, but then we took it away from them. And now when we play and we really promote hard, we do 300 people. But then upon doing that, genuinely think of the two bands you can put on the show that A, help the show, and B, get something out of it. Because if you're the only band in town carrying that weight, nothing's going to happen. Other bands need to come along that can do 300 people and they need to think about the locals that they're going to turn on to their audience and you and then those bands upon playing in front of those 300 people cannot go right back to playing the little places and squander that great thing they've been giving. It's like you, you got to nurture it and it, it just I, it's 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 easier to say back when I was doing what I was doing because there was nowhere to go and exploit it that hardcore. So it was it kind of happened that way because it had no choice but to happen that way. But as more venues came along, I did become more selective about who I would book. And I think those bands kind of realized it and held out for the Cattle Club because it's where they would make money because it's where they would draw people. Do you think people are like just oversaturated, overwhelmed? With overwhelmed and underwhelmed overwhelmed by the same bands playing all the time and underwhelmed by their choices of where they can go see them do you do you have any suggestions as far as new new era promotion maybe everything old is new again you know what i think people should do and i haven't done it myself but really i told a band the other day we had a good show at harlow's this young band they're like 18 19 years years old we went in there and did like 130 people on a seven dollar ticket and i said you know what i wish we had done tonight i wish we had been out there with a clipboard and a mailing list mm. and i don't mean an email list i mean a mailing list i wish we'd been out there with a mailing list because we're going to do this show again in a few months because they're smart they're not going to overplay we're going to do a show again in a few months but we want to reach these people yeah and it's not about the internet anymore because that's it is oversaturated it's about getting something in the mail how cool is that tangible things are cool put, again. put a 25 cent stamp on it and send it in the mail oh look that band we like sent us this you know it's amazing that that ever went away well because cheaper things happened it was you know alive and kicking suffered from that we were doing 100 dollars ads for bands and the second myspace came along i had like about 20 25 bands that were buying 100 dollars ads from us and they would put all their shows in it but when myspace came along they all pulled their ad and it was like well myspace is free so why not do myspace and the ad because we're reaching 20,000 people and i've looked at your myspace you have 300 followers yeah you know, it's like, the, and, and again, you talk about the little things that broke along the way, things like that. Outlawing postering. They, they broke the system that was really working. So, you know, it's all changed. Well, thank you very, very much for giving us your time, your stories, part of your life. 
I appreciate you sharing some time. I'd love to have you back for, uh, for part two. I could go on and on. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. We'll do a, we'll do a sequel in, in just a matter. We'll wait just the right amount of time. <laughs> we'll find just the right marketing campaign. I'll avoid the littler shows. You'll avoid- I'll, I'll avoid the little podcasts okay. and hold out for the big one. Okay. All right. So in a couple of months, when this thing takes off, really takes off, you'll come back because you were here before it was cool. Uh, you know it. You know it. <laughs> well, thank you very I much, have loyalty, Jerry. my friend. <laughs> Good to see you as always. Uh, good to see you.